Well, it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Matt preached a sermon concerning the significance of the Word of God in our lives. All of you remember that? How many of you were impacted by the Holy Spirit in that sermon? You know, there were people on both Saturdays and Sundays who told us that that God did a wonderful, new and renewing work in their hearts through that Word. And as God did that, what we hope and pray for is the work that God has begun in your hearts, that He'll continue that. Don't allow an impacting of the Holy Spirit through His Word to, to energize you and to get you excited and then to begin to wane because the excitement, you see, dies down. The emotion begins to wane. But the determination to do God's will must continue. And so the study of the Word of God, the knowledge of the Word of God, the memory of the Word of God, the receiving of the Word of God, the meditation on the Word of God, the obedience to the Word of God. That is everything that God does in us by the Holy Spirit. That is the very essence of our lives, those of us who are in Christ. It is the very Word of God, which is our very life and breath. Because the Holy Spirit, being the living Word of God, applies that written Word to our hearts and causes our lives to be transformed as we submit to that Word and as we continue to walk in that Word. So let us encourage you this morning and every time we meet, let's be people of God's Word. Amen? In a greater and greater and greater way. And so just remembering the, the significance that was brought to the Word of God a few weeks ago, this morning we're going to return to our study in the Gospel of John And we're going to be, again, in chapter 5, verses 8 to 18, So as you turn there. And what we're going to do is to hopefully see this morning a reality, an experience, something of what Matt alluded to a couple of weeks ago. How significant the Word of God is in our lives and what it can do and how it can minister. And so, as we turn to John 8, 58... As we read this section of Scripture, and this applies to the, the Gospel of John, but of course it applies to all Scripture. It's not just sufficient just to read a paragraph or a page or a chapter or two of Scripture and think, well, I've done my duty, I've read the Scripture, and now I can go on to something else. As we read the Scriptures, we must read them within the context and for the purpose of the person writing that scripture, because you see, the Holy Spirit gave these men anointing and revelation specifically for a purpose that God desired to emphasize in the writing of a particular letter, a particular gospel, or a particular book of the Old Testament. There are particular purposes in mind by the Holy Spirit as He has given these men authors His Word to give to us. And so, as we look in the Gospel of John, as we continue to read, let's keep this in mind. What we read today, or what we read last week, or what we'll read next week, or what we read in our own personal devotions, what is its purpose? Why is it there? What is it connected to? How does it promote the purpose of God? What is it saying about God? What is it saying about me? And how is that impacting my life? So let's not be a people who just read a chunk of Scripture, get a couple of things out of it, and move along. But we want to see in the Gospel of John, as in any Gospel, any letter, any book of the Old Testament, a continuity of presentation from God in this. God is communicating something to us that is of primary, immediate significance in our lives. And we must know what it is in order to live a life that is pleasing to Him and in order to live a life that is protected by Him and providing, uh, allowing Him to provide us with the means of grace that He desires to give to us. So let's look at this particular portion of Scripture this morning. And as I read it, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. 
which is close to the ESV, which many of us have. And as I read this particular portion of Scripture, chapter 5, verses 8 to 18, I want you to keep in mind, why did John include this account in this gospel? What does it mean? How does it relate to the entire purpose that John has in writing this? And by the way, when I talk about the purpose of John, do you remember the purpose of John's writing? Do you remember where it is? What chapter is it in? John chapter 20. This is critical. You cannot read the gospel of John and receive the richness of God's intention to the place that God wants to give it and wants to minister to us unless we know what's going on. So let's remember, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, give us John's purpose. He says, I've written all these things. I've written all this. I've recorded all these chapters for you and put all these incidences and situations and conversations and activities. I've assembled all of this for one great and grand purpose. What is that? To show one thing. You see, John is very narrow-minded. I want to show you one thing. That Jesus, what? Is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing in His name, we can have life through Him. Do you remember that? So we must remember that. So, as we look at this particular section of Scripture, let's think, as I read it, what does this Scripture have to do with that purpose? How does this promote that? So let's read together and follow along with me. John chapter 5, verses 8 to 18. And Jesus said, remember to the paralytic man, the man was at the pool of Bethesda. He couldn't get up. Jesus said, do you want to get well? He said, well, I'm waiting for somebody, you know, an angel to churn the water up. Nobody here to throw me in. And so Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry a pallet. But the man answered him, "Them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, that's a whole sermon in itself, but we will go on to other things today. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Ah, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working for this reason. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What does this passage have to do with the purpose of John in writing this gospel? You remember what John said in verse 31 of chapter 20. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. Suppose you meet someone. Suppose you have a friend. Suppose you watch a television program. Suppose you see an article in the newspaper. That denies that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That denies the divinity of Jesus. Suppose you have a friend who is, um, um, what is it, universalist church. Suppose you have a friend who is uh, just a worldly person. 
Suppose you know someone and that person begins to challenge you and to say, I don't believe the Bible declares that Jesus is divine. Jesus never did say, I am divine. Jesus never did say that. I'm going to get to that later. And you just hold your horses. There's a man down the front here who wants to create trouble. And you'll find out why later. He didn't say that. And so John is out to show that, in fact, this is the very central and necessary truth of Christianity. You see, if Jesus is not the Son of God, if Jesus is not absolutely, completely, and forever, having never begun, having never ended, if he is not himself divine, then he cannot save a frog. There's nothing he can do. He is not the Savior of the world. If he's not divine, then he's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, then we are still in our sins. And if we are still in our sins, we are bound for hell, no matter how much good we try to do. So you see, everything rests on one central, crucial, fundamental point of truth. And that truth is this. Not really that Jesus died. Not really that Jesus did things. Not really that Jesus said certain things. But that all of that shows the truth that He is Himself divine. Those things in themselves are proofs or cases, if you would. John building a case for this, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And as believers, as we speak and share the gospel with others, it's important for us to say what God has done in my life, how I've been transformed, how Jesus has helped me, and how what He can do for you. All of those things are important and, and really uh, quite interesting and help the case, if you would. But if we share the gospel without showing that Jesus is divine, we are not sharing the gospel that God gives us in the Bible. If we share the gospel without showing that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not sharing the same gospel. So let's be careful to share what John shares, what God himself shares. So what does chapter 5, verses 8 to 18, have to do with chapter 20, verse 31? How do they relate? You see, this particular set of verses, 8 to 18 are part of the case that John is building to prove his point in verse 31. John is building a case through testimonies. Brick by brick by brick. Testimony by testimony by testimony. Proof by proof by proof. John is building the edifice of the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Remember verse 18. Look again, chapter 5, verse 18. And particularly, notice the end of the verse. Jesus was calling God His own Father, therefore making Himself equal with God. You see, in calling Himself, and calling God the Father, which we'll mention in just a moment, the problem that the Jews had is that He was just not saying Father or God or whatever He was saying, but that He was saying what He was saying in a way that showed that He was declaring Himself to be the very Son of God, the very Divine One Himself, therefore the Messiah. So let's just look at how John builds his case. Let's look at the Gospel of John in general and see how he builds his case. His case toward what? To prove what? Jesus is divine. Father, as we continue this morning, Father, we ask for power in the pulpit and power in the pews. Father, we ask that the power of your word by the anointing of the Holy Spirit will go forth this morning, not because of the way a man speaks or the vocabulary or even the references he uses, but because you anoint your word. And Father, would you cause there to be power in the pew to receive, to have open hearts and minds and eyes, 
And Father, that that power will not only open our hearts and minds and eyes to this truth for the first time perhaps for some and for a continuing time for others, Father, but would you cause this truth to be even more deeply rooted in us and controlling in us and bubbling up in us, Father, for your glory. Father, shed your power upon us this morning as we wait for you, as we listen, as we walk this morning together through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember what verse 31 says in chapter 20? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember this. To be the Christ, Jesus has to be the Son of God. Amen? To be the Christ, He has to be the Son of God. Now, we don't want to be sloppy in our thinking. The primary issue is not that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The primary issue is that Jesus is the Son of God saving the world. Amen? Now, let's make sure we get all of this straight in our own minds. Even the Jewish, uh, the Jewish leaders were rejecting the divinity of Jesus. And as they rejected the divinity of Jesus, they were rejecting that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who could actually and only one who could save them. You see, kill the truth that Jesus is divine and you kill Jesus' ability to save us. Kill Jesus' divinity and you kill Jesus' ability to save us, to minister to us, to do anything for us. Except just be another good man who did some good things and hopefully helped the world a little better to be better. You see, every attack against the truth, every attack against the truth comes in at this particular point. Every attack that Satan has against the truth must be attacked at the place of Jesus' divinity. That must be the place of the attack. If you listen to the various attacks and if you listen to the various accusations against Christianity, why is there such a prevalence today that Jesus really didn't die? That he sneaked away and got married to some lady called Magdala, Mary of Magdala, and they had a bunch of kids. Did you did you did you hear about this? I mean, hope we, hopefully we haven't spent our money on the movies and the books for this trash. That's giving Satan more opportunity. I mean, everything that comes against the gospel must come primarily against the central core issue that Jesus is divine. I mean, what's this lady's name? Oprah Winfrey, you, you shared about last week, a couple of weeks ago, about her new religious experiences. You know what's behind all of that? What's behind that and what will, if you would, empower that is this, a denial that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Now, if Oprah Winfrey were openly promoting adultery, for men to have lovers. How many of you ladies would listen to her anymore? And yet, she can promote what she's promoting, and so many of the ladies of the church will continue to listen. May I say this, that her denial of the lordship of Jesus is worse and more damaging than anything else she could preach. It would be better for her to preach adultery than preach denial of the Son of God. Ladies, be careful. Men, be careful what we look at and what we listen to and what we read. Because you see, Satan is slick and slowly deceives us as he slowly eats away at the primary truth that Jesus is divine by giving us other alternatives and other experiences, and especially through things that we enjoy. Because if we're enjoying something, then you see our defenses against the truth are often reduced and are set aside a little more. We have to be very careful here. Kill the truth that Jesus is divine, and we kill Christianity. Amen? We kill it completely. So, John builds his case on a series of signs and statements that testify to the divinity of Jesus. 
John says, I'm just going to give you a whole lot of stuff here. I'm going to assemble it in a particular way for a particular purpose. That purpose being, remember, enunciated in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now, I'm going to say that enough. By the time we leave here today, you're going to remember chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 of John is the purpose statement of the gospel. Amen. That's just a pedagogic tool to get you to remember something. And so what does he do? He takes two main streams of evidence, if you would, to build his case. Two types of building blocks, signs and statements. And so, first of all, let's look at the signs. I have recorded for you in your notes the signs that Jesus uh, uh, performs. What are these signs? There's seven of them. What is John saying here? Each sign is given for the particular purpose of showing That a human being, a non-divine person, cannot in any way perform any of these signs on his own. How many of you have ever turned water into wine on your own by saying, it's done? Anybody here? How many of you have on your own, not Because the Holy Spirit moved upon you. But on your own, laid your hands on someone and that person was healed. How many of you have ever raised up a crippled person? How many of us have ever fed 5,000 people? You see, it wasn't that Jesus fed 5,000 people, don't you see? He didn't do that. What happened was this. That the people were out there and the lunch bell went off. Now, people like Matt Mason gets jittery at lunchtime unless he eats. And this guy is motivated to eat. And so when we say sometimes, let's go to Russell's, his eyes twinkle. They actually twinkle. And so these people are hungry. And so you see, what happens is this. Let's be realistic about the word, right? Jesus and his disciples whip out some food that they brought with them, Kenny. They're going to share, brother. We're going to share our own food among ourselves and with a couple of folks right near us. And when the crowds, about 15,000 people here. Now, can you imagine 15,000 people trying, seeing and witnessing what's happening way over there? And these 15,000 people, 5,000 men, remember, so you had the women and the children and all of that kind of thing. And they're so overwhelmed by the generosity of the disciples, they all pull out their baskets of food, and they all have a big lunch, and Jesus picks it up, and we have some leftovers. Now, if you were there, and you read this account, and it wasn't true, That Jesus literally blessed these fish and these loaves and sent these men out into the crowds and literally it was what? Multiplied. If you were there and you were a Jewish man or lady who hated this idea of this new religion, would you have made a case against it? How many of you would have made a case against it? You see, the material that is in this gospel and in the other gospels and in the letters of Paul and Titus and Peter, etc., etc., have no other literary material during the same period of time to in any way refute what they were saying. Why? Because what they said was the truth. Oh, we have people today saying, well, what happened was that really what happened. But, and it's called demythologizing the Bible. This is how I was raised. I was raised to demythologize this. You know, it's mythology and it's whatever. Jesus really did walk on the water. Don't you see that the sand was out there and the sun was at a certain angle that the reflection on the, the sand made it look like water. And so when Jesus came walking on the sand, it looked like water, brother. Ooh, he's walking on the water. Now, I don't know why Peter sank on the sand, but at any rate, that's what it was. Why are they trying to deny that? Why are people hitting against these things? Because, you see, each of these proofs show Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is why these things are so vehemently attacked. What about chapter 9 where the man didn't see? 
There's good evidence. Jesus took the clay, spit in it, here's mud in your eye, and he slapped it in his eye. I think that's where that came from. You liked that one, didn't you? But if it didn't, you're going to use it again. I know you. Paula loves puns. Anybody in puns, tell Paula. She loves them. What I think happened was, and I remember reading this years ago, if you look at the terminology, this has never happened before. I think it was a creative miracle where the man was born without eye sockets. Because remember, they, they, I think he is. He looks like him. We're not sure. You see, this isn't just a blind man can see again. This probably is a guy who doesn't have eye sockets. So Jesus is doing a creative miracle, as you see in Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 2. Why are these recorded? How many of us have created eye sockets in our day? How many of us could go to Baylor University Hospital or Princeton Hospital? Doctor, can you do it? Can you create eye sockets by putting mud in somebody's eye? Only the Son of God can do this. Only a divine man. Why is he recording these things? Why? Because you see, John is showing Jesus is the Son of God. And if he's the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world. And if he's the Savior of the world, he is the only one that you can trust to take you into heaven, having forgiven your sins. Amen? What about Lazarus? How many of us have been to a funeral and have walked up to the casket and laid our hands on the casket and said, rise, and the person got up? How many have done that in here? How many have done that? What's wrong with us? Who alone can bring back the dead having been dead for four days? You see, the doctor would tell you that they die on the operating table two or three, four, five, six minutes. You can resuscitate them and be okay, can't you? But what about four days, doc? It's too late, isn't it? Four days. Why are these in here? To show that Jesus is the Christ. You see, each of these signs demonstrates clearly Jesus' divinity. What about some of the statements? A lot of statements in the Gospel of John. He builds his case in statements from two particular sources. First of all, what others say about Jesus and what Jesus says about himself. I remember when we hear, quote, educated, qualified people who have PhDs or THDs upon PhDs and THDs added to the backs of their names. And they're giving us what they would say as proofs that Jesus is not divine, that he was just another man. They are not getting any of this out of the primary period of time. They are creating scenarios based on today's thoughts Today's opinions and not proofs. You see, the proof is that none of these statements and none of these presentations by John or Paul or Peter or anyone was ever in any way proven to be false. And believe me, had they been able to prove it, the Romans and the Jews would have gotten together and made a big deal of this is not the truth. What statements? Well, John himself makes several statements about Jesus. Remember, John knew Jesus. If you want to get to know who somebody is, talk to someone who has been with that person for a very long time. If you want to know what kind of a man I am, ask my wife. She would know me the best. After that, ask my daughter. And then, of course, make sure you ask my grandchildren, because if you ask my grandchildren, you're going to get a very glowing report, right? Hopefully, right? If they want ice cream next time, it better be right. <laughs> John knew Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one who's leaning against. Uh, John's the one who's leaning against Jesus during the uh, Last Supper meal. And John says, "Hey, I've been with Jesus for three and a half years." And he said, "He is a man from God. He's come from the Father. He has fully revealed the Father. He is to be trusted for eternal life." He has God's authority to impart life and judge and to rule. You remember the testimony of John the Baptist. Who are you? Or should we, you know, who are you? I'm a voice of him who cries in the wilderness. And in John chapter 1, 
John the Apostle records the words of John the Baptist in verses 19 to 36. And he points to Jesus as being, remember, the Lamb of God. Behold, remember, what is that? John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You also have the testimony of Jesus' own disciples. And then, of course, you have the testimony of heaven itself. You remember when Jesus is baptized. That this man is no other than the supreme Lord of heaven and earth, the God of glory, the divine one, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. But you see, in all of these, the most powerful and the most compelling and the clearest statements that Jesus is divine, other than what God himself says, is are from the lips of Jesus himself. You see, Jesus was not bashful about proclaiming himself. Now, we need to be very reticent about that because what we proclaim about ourselves is probably not true. Therefore, we have to be very careful. So I can't tell you that I am a marvelous person. And if I said that enough, most of you would leave. If I said it once, half of you would leave. But Jesus can come out with these statements about himself and everyone is drinking them in. Why? Because they are true. And so there are two types of statements that he makes. He makes what we call implicit statements. He refers to his deity implicitly, indirectly. And then there are the explicit statements where he specifically and outright flat out says, this is a statement about my divinity. So one is a reference and one's a flat out statement of his divinity. The most common implicit statement that Jesus claims to be divine is his use of this word father. Now, you see, in the church, we don't think much of that because, you see, we're raised saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father. Our Father who art in heaven. God is our Father. And so we're used to this. But if you go back a couple of thousand years into the culture of Judaism, during the days during which Jesus spoke this word, this was not a common activity. In fact, no Jew with any sense at all would have dared to call God Father. This would not have escaped their lips. You see, to use the word Father, Jesus is uniquely indicating or showing or proclaiming His unique and intimate relationship with God, not only as He is my Father in a relational kind of a sweet, nice way, and he hugs me and I hug him. But he is showing that he is intimately one with the Father. And so when Jesus uses the word Father, the Jews get the idea. Remember verse 18. They were, why? Upset because he said God is his Father, therefore making himself equal with God. We don't get this necessarily, but you have to remember what he was saying and what they were hearing. John uses the word Father in relation to Jesus' reference to God as his Father 137 times in this gospel. It is probably the most powerful, implicit statement that John makes concerning the divinity of Jesus, that he is the only man who has ever lived up to that point who can call God Father and still is the only man who continues to live who can call God my Father in that sense of uniqueness and oneness. You see, we can call God Father now as an adoptive thing, but we're not one in relation and uniqueness and in unity with God as Jesus is. Do you see that? So we have to be careful, even when we say Father, not to be thinking of it in the same way, I believe, as Jesus uses it. And so he was making a tremendously powerful statement here concerning his equality with God. You remember in John chapter 14, Jesus is 
having the last meal, the last supper with his disciples. And Philip says, Jesus, before you go, remember, I'm going to the Father. And Jesus says, will you show us the Father? If you show us the Father, that sufficeth us. That's enough for us. And Jesus turns to Philip. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you asked me to show you the Father? Did you not know that he who has seen me has seen the Father? See, Jesus says that the Father and I are one. One in every way. Equality and of substance, of eternality, of power and of authority. But you see, Jesus' clearest and most explicit statements about his divinity come from the use of a particular term in the Greek, ego eimi, in the English, I am. Now listen to some of this and see what you think and see if this indicates that we are listening to a man who is either very deluded, very deceived, crazy, a liar, or a man who is speaking the truth. In the Gospel of John, John lists Seven I am statements. Seven I am statements. And I'll read them to you as you look along in your notes. I am the bread of life. Now, let's face it. Unless you're a baker, how many of us can say, I am the bread of life? You know, I am the bread of life. We can't say that. I am the light of the world. Now, some of you are bright, but how many of you can say you are the light of the world? You had to be careful on that one. That went right past a lot of you. Some of you are bright, but can you say, I am the light of the world? Can anyone say that? Several years ago, when I was a Gideon, we had the opportunity once a year to go to Angola State Penitentiary, to go into the dorms where these men were locked up and to go into these massive rooms where, I don't know, maybe a hundred beds in each particular section of the the, the prison, you know, into these dormitory rooms, and they put us in there with all of these guys who had been rapists and murderers and whatever they've done, and they locked the doors, clunk, and I mean a big old lock like that, you know, slides in there, and it makes a big noise when that metal hits the metal. And so I'm in there. I told the church yesterday, I'm bigger than Matt Mason. He could probably take me. I'm a big fella. At least on that day, I didn't know what I was doing. Has the Holy Spirit ever given you boldness? And once you get through it, you leave and then you realize what you did and you start sweating. (laughs) This is what happened. I walked in with, you know, one or two other fellows. We have about 70 guys in here who were in there for life or whatever. Now, What's another life term if they kill me? How much can you add to life? You know? And so we're in there. And there's this one great big guy way over there. I remember it was like yesterday. He is standing, and all the guys around him are sitting on their beds, and he is yelling and screaming, cursing Christianity. He knows we're there, and he hates it. And so me, I walk up to him. Now, that was first foolish in the natural, don't you see? I should have stayed on the other side of it, you know, like that. But you see, thank God for the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. I walked up to him and I said, what you talking about? And he tells me, rah, 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 rah. and I said, well, you want to talk about it? And he said, no, no, no. I said, you afraid? He's a member of the Farrakhan group. What do they call that? Say it again. The, the black Muslims. Is that what they call it? The Farrakhan. Nation of Israel. Islam. He's Farrakhan man. And these guys have attitudes. I said, are you afraid? Man, he stops and looks at me. He could look through me through five. Of, he stopped and just looking at me. I'm here and he's here, you know. I'm maybe five, seven feet away from him. And all the guys on the beds 
They ready for me, baby. We are ready today. Get this guy. And they're all looking at him, and they're looking at me, and they're looking at him. I don't know how long this took. It probably took about four seconds, but it felt a little longer than that. And he said, no, I'm not. I said, well, let's sit down and talk. So we sat down, and I sat down. Listen, I don't realize what's going on until we're getting in the car leaving. No, no, it hasn't hit me until we're getting in the car leaving. At 2 o'clock, we had to go. And so we start chatting. And he starts telling me about the nation of Islam and whatever. And I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? Well, he thinks Jesus is a good man, a good prophet. You know, he's one of these guys, but he's not as great as, what's the man's name? Mohammed, is that the main thing? He's not as great as Mohammed or whatever. You know, Allah used Jesus, whatever. But he's another good man and so on. And I said, well, do you have any children? Yes, I have a five-year-old son. I said, well, would you let your son go to a school <clears throat> that was taught by a person who proclaimed to be God? Oh, no. Would you go to a, let your son go to a school where the man said, and I repeated something, oh, absolutely, you know, no, 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 you know, no way. You see, none of us would do that, would we? Somebody walk into the classroom of one of my children, and this man stands there and says, I am that I am. I'm the God of Israel. Man, we pulling the kids out fast. You see, he knew better. He knew that either Jesus is who he says he is, He's a liar. These proofs are given so we know that Jesus is not just another good man. Even he himself denied being a good man to that lawyer who said, good master. Why? Because that man did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Therefore, Jesus says, you cannot call me good unless you acknowledge me as the Son of God. Let's be careful about this, believers. This is the crux of the matter. I am the door to the sheepfold. Very narrow-minded. You'd never do well in this pluralistic society about very narrow-minded. One way, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. Can you imagine when the Jews heard this? You have to know something of the history of Israel. But God has always in the Old Testament proclaimed himself as the shepherd of Israel. Remember in Isaiah. Remember in Jeremiah. Remember in Ezekiel, I myself will shepherd my people. I myself. This is the great, great God of the Old Testament. And here, one day, appears this man who is saying, I am the shepherd of Israel. What must they have felt? What must they have thought? Why is John one upon another? And upon another, adding to us these comments, these statements, these affirmations, because he's showing that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You see, that's what it you know, divine. Divine. No, not divine. The vine. There's strange people down here in the front. I said in the beginning... Jesus doesn't call himself divine, but, you know, okay, let's continue. What is so shocking? You don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn to John chapter 8, it crescendos in John chapter 8 in verse 58. Jesus is talking to the Jews about Abraham being their father, and Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? You're not even 50 years old and Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. How could Abraham have possibly seen your day? You're not even a 50-year-old man. You crazy or something? And in John 8, 58, you need to know these verses. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Ah, verse 59 says, and they all picked up stones to do what? To kill him. Why? What was so shocking about saying, Ego Amy, I am? Well, if you were to go to Exodus chapter 3 and look at verses 13 to 15, you remember the encounter of Moses at the burning bush out in the desert 
40 years. And then seeing a bush that is burning but not yet being consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside and see this sight. Why the bush burns and is not consumed. I've got to go see this one. So Moses approaches the bush. And you remember the words, Moses, Moses. And Moses immediately knows he is in the presence of God himself. And Moses falls to the ground. And the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Israel. And Moses, smart man that he is, he says, I need to know who you are and what kind of power you have and what kind of territory do you rule over. You see, those little territorial gods in those days. So what's your name? Who are you? What are your credentials? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Yahweh, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say to the people of Israel, I am hath sent you. And this shall be my memorial and everlasting name from generation to generation. I am. It's the word Yah. Yah. How many of you are familiar with the words Hallelujah? Hail or praise to I am, Yah. And so you see the name of God in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, with those big capital L and the little capital R-D, is over 6,000 times the translation of the name Yahweh. I am, I am the Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the sovereign God. I am the one who created the heavens and the earth. I am the one who gave Adam his wife. I am the one who took Enoch into heaven. I am the one who called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. I am the one, you see, who sent Joseph into Egypt so the family could come in. I am the one who, through Moses, delivered my people out of Egypt. I am the one who opened the seas. I am the one who anointed Joshua. I am the one who stopped the Jordan River and it stopped it right there and let the people come in. I am the one who conquered all the people of Canaan. I am the one who spoke through all the prophets. I am the one who brought fire down on Mount Carmel. I'm the one who took Elijah into heaven. I'm the one who used Elisha in such great way. I am the one who sat on the throne when Isaiah said, Behold, I have seen the Lord high and lifted up and His train filling the temple. I am God sovereign Himself and there is no other beside me. And then thousands of years later, a young girl is found to be pregnant out of wedlock. And an angel of the Lord appears to her husband Joseph. And the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua or Yeshua or Joshua because he shall save his people from their sins. Remember in Matthew 121. What is the name of Jesus? It's the name Yah. I am the eternal, ever present, ever living God of glory. I am Yah. And it's also the word or the name Hosea, meaning salvation. And the angel says to Joseph, you take these two names as Moses did to Hosea in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers and rename him Joshua as Moses did then. You take these two names, Yah, I am, and Hosea, salvation. And you put them together and you come forth with the name Yahshua or Jesus or Joshua, all the same, which means I am salvation. Or you can be translated, the Lord saves. That's his name. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am, I am, I am. Jesus is saying in essence and absolutely most powerfully and explicitly, I am God of the Old Testament, having become a man in order to take away your sins and dying on the cross and rising on the third day. This is who he is. You see, this is the proof that He is the God of glory. 
is because of what he says about himself. Mostly proclaiming himself explicitly, doctrinally connecting himself to the Old Testament God in the most personal way that can be done. This is the very God of the Old Testament. So the next time you read Psalm 23, and what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. What is it? Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh, the I am, is my shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus Christ. You see, the question is, has John proven his case? There's so much more we could say. We would love to go on. Trust me, we would love to go on. There's so much more. When you read the Gospel of John, unlike any other Gospel, the Christology or the study of the person and work of Christ is central in this Gospel. What is John doing? He is proving, he is building a case that Jesus is none other than the eternal God of glory, The Old Testament God, having been born of a woman, having become a man, living as a man, fully God, fully man, and bearing all of our sin unto the cross in himself, paying the full, final, and forever debt of all of the sin of his own people and taking it down into destruction, having paid the full wrath of God against our sin in a period of six hours, being buried, being left in the tomb, and then rising the third day for our justification, sitting at the right hand of the authority of God, sending the Holy Spirit upon the earth as the the Holy Spirit being the great evangelist of God, gathering in the people of God unto Himself, So that in heaven forever, God may have a glorified body of believers, a family in whom he is well pleased. This is Jesus Christ. What does that say to us today? This morning, are you still trying to figure out whether Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God? He is. There is incontrovertible, unequivocal, truth and proof you cannot get away from this fact jesus is the son of god and since he's the son of god that means that what he said about himself and his mission is absolutely and eternally true and this is what he said whosoever shall call upon the name of yahweh of the lord jesus shall be saved. Shall be saved. This morning, if your heart is burning inside of you because you have never considered it this way or it's impacting you on the inside in a way that you have never felt, today the Lord is saying, I am announcing to you and bringing to you myself in fullness to you to be your Savior. If this is where you are and what is happening in your heart and you've realized, I've never understood this before, but now I do and I want to be saved. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. If that's where you are, say, yes, Jesus, I confess my sin to you and I receive your forgiveness and I bow my knee to your lordship in my life and I declare that you are my Savior and the Lord who saves me forever. Amen? That's your heart. Do it today. Do it. For the rest of us, what difficulty... What calamity, what situation, what relationship, what problem, what whatever is facing you. That if you could take that and compare it to these seven deeds, water into wine, nobleman's son, crippled man, Feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, 
creating eye sockets and raising Lazarus from the dead after four days. Can he meet your need? Can he touch your life? Can he deal with you and your situation? Can he, church? Can he or not? Can he or not? Well, then let's let him. Where are you? That the great I am's cannot touch you. What I am, what situation do you have that is not within the scope of one or all of these I am's? What in your life is outside the primacy of the God of glory? What? Is there anything outside of our life, apart from the, uh, within our life, apart from the primacy of God? Anything at all? Then church... Let us stop being a people who are being whipped by circumstances, whipped by temptations, whipped by our feelings, our emotions, and what's going on around us. And let's be a people who proclaim Jesus Christ is God Himself in me, my Savior, and I will not give in to anything except His glory. Amen? Let's be a people who live for His glory, who live victoriously, who show in our lives, no matter what is happening, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God forever. Amen? Let's stand and sing. King of love is my delight Eyes are fire, His face is light First and last, the living one His name is Jesus us. And from His mouth there comes a sound that shakes the earth and splits the ground. And yet this voice is life to me, the voice of Jesus. And I will sing my songs of love, calling out across the earth. The King has come, the King of love has come. And troubled minds can know His peace Captive heart can be released The King has come The King of love has come The King of love is my delight The King of love is my delight Eyes are fire, His face is light The first and last, the living one His name is Jesus the sound that shakes the earth, splits the ground, and yet this voice is life to me, the voice of Jesus, and I will sing my songs of love, calling out across the earth, the King has come, the King of love has come, and trouble Love like His, I cannot find, I am His prize, He is mine, how can a sinner know such joy, because of, only because of Jesus, of love are in His hand, the price is paid, sinful man, accepted child, forgiven son, because of Jesus.
He's not in the tomb anymore. They rolled the stone away, not to let him out, but to let us in, to show there ain't nobody. They are no more, no more, no more. He's risen. And as surely as he has risen and said he was coming the first time, he is coming back the second time for the church. Church, let's live in the good of the glory of God's risen Son forever. Amen? Amen.